I don't see this as a real estate business. I see this as a vehicle in order to achieve the goals of our investors in terms of asset protection. I think this is the best way to protect your assets. I think this is the best way to protect your assets to vis-a-vis in- inflation. And I think that this is the best way to get a yield that is consonant with, with the upper level of income that you can get from a relatively safe asset, right? 8% is fantastic, to be frank. I mean, it's a spectacular product. Welcome to XM State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XM State. Hello and welcome back to XM State. Today we welcome the founder and CEO of International Capital Partners, Agustin Barrios Gomez. Building on an extensive and varied career in both the business and political sector, Agustin has capitalized on his knowledge of 28 years of investment experience parlayed with a partnership with Foimbra, the largest private equity commercial real estate fund in Mexico, to create his real estate investment product, which we will let him tell us all about. In today's interview, we discuss why Agustin sees his product as so attractive on a risk-adjusted basis and the must-have for any investment portfolio, the significance of the spread between cap rates and cost of financing and how this factors into ICP's strategy, the characteristics that ICP values most in a tenant when considering an acquisition, and we touch on today's political environment surrounding the U.S. and Mexico and what it means for investment purposes as we head into 2021. Agustin brings a tremendous perspective to today's show. It's quite impressive how well Agustin understands real estate, his markets, his product, and his investors. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of XN State. Without further ado, here is today's guest, Agustin Barrios Gomez. Agustin, it's a tremendous pleasure to have you on the show. How are you today? Great. It's great to be here. So why don't we begin by sharing a little bit about your background and career with our audience to create a little bit of context towards the conversation. Sure. So my name is Agustin Barrios Gomez. I'm the founder and CEO of uh, International Capital Partners. We are the sister fund to the largest private equity commercial real estate fund in Mexico, which is uh, Foimbra. It's an organization that's based out of Monterey. We ourselves are based out of uh, Mexico City, Monterey, and we have our U.S. operation in Houston. So ex-COVID, I spend about half the time uh, up in, uh, on, in, in the U.S. and the rest of the time between our two offices in, in Mexico City and Monterey. So basically, I come at this from a patrimonial investment background. I've had to deal with basically family money since I was very young because I'm an only child and my father had a stroke when I was 22. And so I, I sort of was thrown full in into what it means to you know have to deal with investments when you're thinking of the long term, you know, whether it be in the case of my mother, who very quickly became for all practical purposes, a widow to the interests of the family and all that. So I had to deal with that. And so over the years, I've had a, an extremely rich professional experience that has taken me uh, all over, but leveraging on my own experience, having lived in places like Switzerland and, of course, in the United States and graduating from Georgetown, et cetera, I was able to really get an in on what is uh, asset management and private banking over the years. And eventually, one of my investments was with Foimbra, with this organization, Monterrey, in Mexico. That fund has uh, HEVs, Walmarts. If any, if your audience knows anything about Mexico, it has a lot of OXOs. Uh, OXOs are this uh, convenience chain 
the fund has more oxos than anybody else and all of that. And so having that investment there and being friends with the founder and CEO and seeing how that particular investment consistently actually did what it was purported to do, which was to give me the yield that I was looking for, plus capital appreciation every 12 months. So over the long term and leveraging on the fact that my father-in-law has been developing in Houston since 1975, I sort of put those two things together. And what I did was So I took the basic business model of Foimbra, which was to have a steady return on a quarterly basis with no, because it's private equity, there's no fluctuation in the price of the stock, unlike REITs or or Fibras in Mexico, but rather a very consistent stream of income based on credit tenants and just really top-notch real estate. So like one of our advisors, John Greenman, likes to say, this is like having, you know, in the case of right now, one of our properties is actually has uh, Amazon as a tenant. So this is like having an Amazon bond, but with a real estate kicker. So what I found was from an investment standpoint, I just couldn't beat the value proposition of what we were doing in ICP. So I picked up that business model. I applied it with the business contacts that I had. I was privy to thanks to my father-in-law's experience in Houston for 45 years. And so that sort of gave us an in and we've been growing ever since. And now we have uh, upwards of 30 properties, over 70 different tenants. And uh, we've been dispersing or distributing yield on time and in accordance with what we offer to our investors for 14 trimesters now. We're very proud of what we've done. Congratulations. That sounds like a pretty impressive track record. So when you say looking for a yield, do you mean that you essentially purchase core stabilized real estate assets? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, there's a lot of bread and butter stuff, but we found that there's an, there's a niche between five and $25 million in terms of properties where institutional investors aren't looking and where we're able to pick them up at you know, maybe a 50 basis point premium in terms of cap rate. And right now with the credit spread, uh, the spread between the cost of capital and, and yield being so favorable that you can get really good terms. And so we're able to give our investors what we set our, ourselves to do, which is basically to our Mexican investors through our SAPI vehicle, because there's, there's two ways to enter the ICP, right? So if you are somebody who pays taxes in Mexico and is, is a Mexican taxpayer, then you need to do it through a company in Mexico so that that company owns a U.S. entity that is a a check-the-box LLC that tributes in the United States that represents, you know, those obligations on behalf of the Mexican investors. That's for reasons of foreign investment, in terms of taxing on inheritance, in terms of withholding. You need a U.S. entity to represent the interests of those Mexican investors. And then that goes forward and owns the corresponding percentage of what is the the main vehicle, which is a pass-through LLC, which is where the SPVs come from, or rather feed into. And so that's the Mexican, right? That That's the route for people who are Mexican, who are subject to Mexican tax. If you are a U.S. person, as defined by the IRS, if you are either a U.S. resident, citizen, or if you have, or if you're a sophisticated investor, who already has a U.S. vehicle that tributes in the United States, you can go directly into the Pastor LLC, into what we call ICP4. So our Mexican investors or our Mexican domiciled investors are receiving their yield, which is 8% per year 
after tax because of course we have to, we are obligated to pay those taxes corresponding both in the United States and in Mexico of course there's no double taxation and all of that but bottom line we need to take care of that and we need to pay that on behalf of our investors or if you're a US investor then you're getting 9% and how that divides up but of course we don't cover it's a pass through right so you get your K1 uh, every year and and that is what you put into your your accounting and and you do with it what you need to do with it so for US investors, for US domiciled investors, basically they are able to get their yield before tax, and that's nine, and that divides up into 7% paid out on a trimester basis. And then every 12 months, you get uh, 2% in equity. And for our Mexican investors, it's 6%. And then, uh, of course, this is all in dollars. And then after 12 months, you get your 2%. And then you, you're making, you are receiving yield from the new amount. Right. So there's a compound interest to the product. That was a, a great overview on what it takes to set up the legal structure to invest in to make these kinds of, of investments. I have a, but a that, by of, the way, that legal structure is not also it's not an optional legal structure. I mean, if you don't do it that way, you're exposing yourself, whether you're buying a condo in Miami or you're buying into a fund like this or you're buying many properties. Of course, we take care of the structure, but if you are doing something direct, you need to create that structure. And that structure is de rigueur. It's not optional unless you want to be subject to inheritance taxes that are and to and to withholding based on foreign investors. Correct. Correct. And to summarize, if somebody either already has a U.S. entity or there's somebody who lives in the U.S. and they want to invest in your funds, it's pretty simple, right? They yeah. can invest directly in, in your LLC and mm -hmm. you take care of the rest. Yeah, both ways, it's very simple. If For it's a Mexican investor, yeah. domiciled investor, then you know we, we deal with it and we deal with the tax situation. We we take the benefit of the uh, accelerated depreciation. And for our Mexican investors, we provide yield through um, reembolso capital or, or uh, capital reimbursement. But at the end of the day, you're just kicking the can down the road because you are sort of, you, you know, you, you are creating that uh, at the end of the day, you are paying, of course, all the tax, all the corresponding taxes, whether it's in the United States or in Mexico and making sure that those mesh. But that's our job. And for the U.S. investor, for the U.S. domiciled investor in terms of uh, where they tribute, then, yes, it's even simpler. But of course, they get a K-1 and they have to put that as part of their accounting when tax time comes. Okay. And the yield that you refer to, is that essentially a preferred return that you offer? It's to not your really. I, I don't actually like the concept of preferred return because it means, oh, look, you know, I'm setting aside this money and this is what I'm going to pay you before. And you, uh, look, you know, we we charge rents and we are able to get a better return because there's a spread between the cost of capital and the yield of the of the building. And that's what you're getting. Right. So there's nothing preferred about it. You're you're getting what the money that is that is due to you. What my job as a fund manager is is to make sure that there's no hiccups in that, right? So that's where our work as the people who are running the show need to make sure that there's money in the tiller, so to speak, to make sure that we meet all of our obligations and that you're getting the yield that you expect to get, right? 
Yeah, I understand. I, I think preferred return perhaps makes more sense. The term may make more sense where it's an investment that isn't where generating develop- cash flow. Yeah. Exactly. Where there's development risk. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of promises. Oh, look, I'm going to give you money before I get money and, and all of that. But sure, I mean, that, but that's a different risk profile. So what kind of properties do you invest in in terms of asset type? So there's a difference between our sister fund in Mexico, which, like I mentioned previously, invests in retail, like uh, bottom of the pyramid retail, like uh, supermarkets and convenience stores and all of that. So in Mexico, we have HEVs, we have Walmarts, we have OXOs, we have all of these different things in our sister fund, right? In ICP's fund, and this this is sort of a, a learning or a takeaway for your listeners if they're interested in this, we decided that U.S. retail was in a situation which is different from Mexican retail. And so we decided that in terms of risk and return, we found that we would rather be in light industrial, light in- manufacturing, distribution, it's the office industrial flex. We love office industrial flex. We think that's a great niche where the tenants are, are committed to the property. That's very typical of Texas, of course. You know, you're not going to get office industrial flex in in a pricey market like Manhattan or like Los Angeles. But we decided several things early on. One that we were going to go to consolidated cities that have hadn't seen a bubble, right? Like for example, San Francisco. We were not going to do the San Franciscos. We were not going to do necessarily the New Yorks. We were not going to do the what are called gateway cities. We certainly were not going to do the Miamis, which you know for many different reasons, we don't like Southern Florida. And we do like consolidated cities like Houston, like Dallas, like Denver. These are cities that have not lived through price bubbles that are growing organically, that that are growing both in terms of population and in terms of economy, that are attractive from a from a cost basis for anyone involved, right? Coming out from California, like we're seeing, you know, right now in Houston, Hewlett Packard Enterprises, and and like we saw CBRE moving from Los Angeles to Dallas, and all of these different things. So we chose our markets very specifically: consolidated cities with growth that had not lived through pricing bubbles, and we chose our product also very conservatively. And actually we kind of hit the jackpot, so to speak, because we never got into hospitality. We never got into retail. So in terms of COVID, for example, uh, thankfully, we've been able to avoid all of that fallout. The risk profile that I'm looking for, for a vehicle like this, which is patrimonial investment, I want my contracts north of 5%. And I don't want my yield North of five years. Or what Sorry, five, right. Yeah, north of five years, right. You know, our, our average lease, to our WALT right now is upwards of six, if I remember correctly. And I think that that makes a very big difference. I also, in terms of patrimonial investment, you know, in, in terms of, the, of what we're looking for, we believe that you don't need to have value add in order to get good returns. We, you know, we like the risk profile of, of buildings that as long as you keep them up and give them good maintenance in accordance with whatever your covenants are with, with the bank and you make your, your, your reserves and all of that, I think in terms of risk profile, I think that that's, from my perspective, I think that's more attractive. Okay. So you typically buy buildings, well, you buy them from, say, a developer who just finished a brand new building? Is that the type of well, product that you um, buy? No, we do. I mean, we, we buy all sorts of product under different circumstances. We so we certainly love motivated sellers, but uh, we buy from 
most of our product has been, well, not most, but half of our product has been off market. We cherry pick, right? So because that's that's what we can do, right? Because my, my mandate isn't circumscribed. So in terms of, you know, being very strict, we have we have a mandate that allows us to cherry pick. So I'll give you a few examples. For, for one of the things that we almost always ask is that whatever we're buying is mission critical for our tenant. So we don't want, you know, the fifth regional office or of whatever organization. We want the headquarters. We want, for example, LabCorp. We have we have a building in Houston that's for LabCorp. LabCorp is is the largest laboratory for testing in the world. And it's part of the S&P 500. It's a, it's a very big company. And so LabCorp has only 26 facilities in the United States. And the one facility that processes upwards of 24, 30,000 samples per day is the facility that we own. We know that LabCorp, despite its size, would have serious issues dealing with its business if our property was not 100% online. Semex USA, for example, we have their office that does all of the invoicing. So it turns out that Semex has a deal with Jersey City where they have certain tax benefits that they don't get anywhere else. And they have to be in that suburb of Houston and they have to be in our building for them to get those benefits. It's again, mission critical. There was a portfolio of National Oil Well Varco, NOV, which is like a $20 billion company that provides uh, services to the energy sector. They had a portfolio in Texas and with one facility in Oklahoma City. So we were, when we bid at 7.5 cap and a Texas-based fund with the mandate to just invest in Texas ended up buying at a 6.5, which we were not interested in. But because they couldn't invest outside of Texas, we ended up taking what for us, curiously enough, was the nicest property of all, which was an industrial park in Oklahoma City with a 10-year contract for NOV. And we were able to cherry pick that and have that at the 7.5 that we were looking for. So that we've, we've done consistently. We're also able to look at who the owner is. So there's a, another property in, in Houston, Jcraft, which is a, a small to medium-sized wood furniture manufacturer that's actually a leader regionally, but it's a very small company. It's a private company. It only has like $30 million worth of sales. So under other circumstances, we wouldn't look at something like that. But when we were in negotiations and we had already said no, the owner who is a very well-known, very wealthy individual in Houston who has an incredible credit rating, when he asked, you know, what would it take to make this attractive to you? Well, what it would take is if you would actually guarantee personally. And so he signed off. And that's something that we can do, right? Because we're not forced necessarily to have one specific profile. We can look at the deals that are good deals from another perspective. And that's why we're able to get such good returns. That makes a lot of sense. And that helps me understand why you, you have the strategy that you have, because that's a conversation that you don't hear in the residential space, because in residential, almost all tenants are create equally because the tenants, sure. it's it's not as important their credit rating because they're one of hundreds typically in one building. Right. But in this case, because there's a lot of risk for you in hiring the and bringing in the wrong tenant, then that's, right. that's why this becomes such an important piece of the puzzle to Yeah, to it, 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 like we say in Spanish, no, it's una, it's una cosa por otra. It's, it's, it's a trade-off. So, we don't have to deal with, you know, 300 individuals and everything that that implies. 
but at the same time we have to make and and of course our contracts are not a year you know are not not renovated yearly but at the same time we do have to make sure that our tenants are you know the quality that we need to make sure that they do have the wherewithal to meet their obligations for the next five to ten years which is how long yeah because because you have a lot more vacancy risk that's right yes you have you have more vacancy risk yes so when you refer to these yields can you use some numbers when you compare or specifically what metric are you referring to when you cash on cash okay that's our golden rule we do cash on cash and uh, i mean we certainly have some flexibility because you know we like to have amazon in our stable and we like to have um, the GSA, right, the federal government and all of that. But at the same time, we want a very healthy cash on cash. And, and that's what enables us to give the yield and to pay, you know, to make sure to cover the expenses and, and all of that. So we, we like to see cash on cash north of 10%. And, I, and I've had these conversations with people. They're like, yeah, so do we. But so far, so good. I mean, we've been able to pull it off. So your investors, they're seeking that that yield. Do they? Our investors, our investors are. It's our job to make sure that our investors are comfortable. Our investors, specifically, except for like maybe one or two family offices, our investors don't want to have to open up the computer every day and and figure out, you know, if there's a, an issue with mark to market or or any of that. Our investors, they're the from we 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 took our ethos from our fund our sister fund, which is, you know, everybody sort of wants to live off of their rents at the end of the day, right? So we, when you come from an asset management background, it's not, I don't see this as a real estate business. I see this as a vehicle in order to achieve the goals of our investors in terms of asset protection. I think this is the best way to protect your assets. I think this is the best way to protect your assets to vis-a-vis inflation. And I think that this is the best way to get a yield that is consonant with with the upper level of income that you can get from a relatively safe asset, right? Eight percent is fantastic, to be frank. I mean, it's a spectacular product, and I I, I have this issue because I I kind of disaggregate myself or I separate myself as a because I'm also an investor, of course, right? With my own money personally, and of course my family money and and all of that. So I have to be very very careful in that respect, right? even from an individual standpoint. But it's very difficult for me to not overweight our product because I see from an asset management standpoint, I see the other investment options available through the traditional brokerages and and asset management firms and and private bank and and all of that. And to be frank, it it just doesn't, it's hard for me because I I see this product as a no-brainer in terms of risk and, and reward, in terms of stability, it's just such a great product. Yeah. And that sounds like a different strategy than most of, at least what I hear and see day to day. A lot of times we fixate on metrics like IRR and equity multiple when we may lose sight on why we're chasing those metrics in in the first place and fixate on trying to achieve a certain IRR. But you're talking about why it is that that your investor what are they looking for at yeah. the end of the day yeah they're you know they they want security and and i think look i think that a lot of people kid themselves in terms of how sophisticated they are and i i would actually caution people if you are not a professional real estate investor don't get into this game if you found yourself a way you know if if you have 
let's say you're you're a business person that has some sort of success in 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 one area or another make your money where you know what you're doing i see so many you know so many people getting taken for a ride you know and they'll buy and i hope i'm not stepping on any toes here but you know they'll buy that condo in miami thinking that they're diversifying they're diversifying their assets i've been around the block long enough to tell you that it is a huge mistake 9 times out of 10 it's costly in both in terms of time headache you've got to create investment vehicles that you're not aware of when you're doing that then there are people who buy uh for eb5s i mean that's just insane right uh, it, when you actually look at the fine print of of eb5 developments yikes i mean there's no guarantee the the risk is up there it's just i think that there's a lot of myths in this in this industry and i think a lot of people who think that they know what they're doing are getting themselves into are buying problems right and so that's why we try to focus on current income and that's why you know our investors we now have the critical mass to when we receive an investment we are able to start paying out yield on that investment you know the following month and it's based on you know tenants who are already paying rent and when you see our financing that we get it's you know it's it's our yield doesn't depend on doing refi left right and center right we're not financial wizards we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here we're doing very solid stuff we've got good tenants good buildings good tenants long term leases and solid credit right credit that you know with with that's actually paying off the debt right that's amortizing the debt so that you actually have a cushion in terms of what of your equity which is very important right at least that's what people that who 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 come to us are looking for may uh, you know i'm sure that there are a lot of cowboy investors out there that are you know that are really excited about doing all sorts of financial engineering you know and maybe if we if we turn this building around and we'll do an infill and all of that but that's not us the important thing is that you're very clear on on your strategy and you're sticking to it and not necessarily looking around for what everybody else is doing and because at the end of the day Every investor is different and everybody has their own goals and objectives. And what's important yeah, there to, are people to be, that want to, have, you know, that the, the, the want to be making 24% IRR when you know when all is said and done and that's fantastic, right? Just my word of advice, you know, having been doing this for the last 28 years and I've made those mistakes. I bought those condos, right? you know i've i've had the friends yeah. Who, yeah. who who moved someplace and and turn around and say look this is a fantastic play but it turns out that what the, were they doing in mexico you know when they were working in mexico city well they were sort of a software engineer and now it turns out that they're in real estate yeah. it's it's we've seen a lot you, know, of, you see a lot of that in when during a bull cycle like the last 10 years right but anyways Agustin, you talked about the spread between the yield and the cost of capital. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and also talk to us about that's today's environment, right? So what happens, how do you expect that to change and what happens when it changes? Well, I mean, you know, change is the only constant, right? But for a while now, you know, we, we've had very low cost of financing. And that's thanks to the fact that, uh, that inflation has remained tame. And thanks to the fact that, you know, the Fed has seen their their remit as including low unemployment and all of that. So in that atmosphere, in that in that sort of area, context. Playing, yeah. right, context, thank you. 
then you have, you know, a property that's, so we have, we, we've actually been very lucky and we've been very diligent in trying to make sure that our, that our, that the yield of our properties is fairly high, right? So it's given the risk profile that we're looking for. So we have an average cap rate across our properties upwards of 7.9, which is spectacular given the fact that, you know, given the type of properties that we've had, the way that we've been able to buy. But so because your average is 7.9 and your cost of capital is averaging, including the original loans that we got, maybe about four. So you've got between seven and seven plus and that four, and that's the spread. Mm -hmm. And that's what allows you to actually give these sorts of returns. Now, there are two ways of doing that, right? There's, you know, the sort of kamikaze financing way where you really are sort of priming the pump and you and you take the financing to the highest level that you can, right? So you're doing 80% loan to value and you're doing, you know, CMBS loans with no interest only during the first five years. That's one way of doing it. And, and I'm sure that there's a place in, in a portfolio for that, I guess, you know, if that's what you're looking for. But if you do things more on the conservative side, then you're talking about 60, 65% loan to value, and you're talking about fixed interest, and you're talking about uh, long term, and you're not doing CMBS loans because you you do want to be able to have somebody to call up, as you know, a CMBS loan. Once it's dispersed, at that moment it's atomized, right? So they 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 package it, and, and suddenly there's no owner of that. So so if there are any issues, like I mean, we haven't had any issues, thank God, and we didn't, you know, we we haven't had any tenant issues and through COVID, which is thanks to the fact that we invested in, you know office industrial and flex and, 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 and suburban yeah and suburban office so even even in office for example cbd right central central business district office has been much harder hit than the type of office that we have which is maximum four stories you know with parking on site and all of these different things that make it less uh, dangerous in in the covid era so when you have all of that then that's what allows you to give the sort of yield that we are given okay and when you buy a property, do you do so through a general partner that manages the property and deals with the day-to-day -day maintenance and sort of manages the property? Or do you buy the property directly as essentially as a general partner? It depends on the property. So if it's a multi-tenant, then it behooves the owner to have, in this case, us to have a professional asset manager in, or property manager like Lincoln Properties, for example, which we use. If it's a single tenant and the tenant, for example, I mentioned LabCorp, LabCorp is very jealous of their space, right? So they don't want us, they don't want anybody anywhere near their operation because, you know, there's industrial intelligence stuff to deal with and there's proprietary information that they have to, they're a public company and all of that. So it's a very different situation there to having a multi-tenant where, you know, it's more much more high maintenance. Also, you know, if you're full triple net, lease that's also a very different situation than you're, if you're doing gross so okay. it has to be ad hoc and do you as international capital partners deal directly with a tenant for instance or is there a like a, a developer or a sponsor with whom you are investing with that essentially executes the business plan it depends also on the case sometimes we have uh, gps who co-invest with us and so they will take that side of the operation and they'll do the carve outs, you know, and all, and all of that. 
Sometimes there, there are deals that we're doing with GPs that for all practical purposes work for us. So it depends on the deal. Um, there okay. are GPs out there who can bring some spectacular deals that, that can bring a lot of value to that investment. And so that's we certainly leverage that if, if we find that there's value there. Something I was in that that I also wanted to talk to you about based on on your background in the in the political world is how you <laughs> see how you see the situation in Mexico and in the US and just uh, your general thoughts on because you raise capital in Mexico to invest in the US. I don't know if that's if 100% of your capital you raise in Mexico or if you also Not raise 100%. Capital in the US. Uh, well, I mean, we raise international capital, right? But yes, so how the situation is sort of from a North American perspective, I think the current Mexican administration has been very clear that they don't really have very much interest in investment, right? You know, they have a very specific political agenda that includes centralizing power and more of a redistributive plan, but they don't see investors as as allies, right? And mm -hmm. so they have created situations that actually are very negative for the investor, where, you know, whether you're talking about big infrastructure projects like the ones that they've canceled, like the new airport in Mexico City, which is actually the largest infrastructure project in North America, by the way, uh, when it was canceled, or whether you're talking about, you know, what happened to uh, Constellation Brands in Mexicali, este, or you're talking about all of the energy issues, like, uh, right, in terms of both uh, renewable energy projects that have been canceled because of transmission issues with CFE, or you're talking about contracts that were handed out on a bidding basis with Pemex, which have been canceled. You know, the atmosphere in terms of investment right now in Mexico is a little bit aggressive. And so that's the situation right now with that. Now, with respect to the United States, I think that, yes, there are certain fiscal benefits of, of the current outgoing administration. But at the same time, I would argue that there was a lot of political risk in having a sort of the executive, basically everything done around a cult of personality, right? When you don't have strong institutions, then everything becomes arbitrary. And so for the last three, four years in, in the United States, you know, we did see certain tax benefits that, that of course have, have helped economically and especially from the perspective of an investor. But at the same time, I don't think that that's a very solid foundation to build your business on. You have to consider the fact that when everything is personal, then you know you're you're dependent on one person. That's not the way to do things, right? The, for an investor, you want clear rules for the medium and long term, and the only way to do that is through institutions. So we see that the future as being even more solid in terms of investment than it was before, okay. even despite the possibility of having tax hikes. Okay, that's yeah. a great perspective. I appreciate that. Agustin, are you ready for our fire round? <laughs> sure. What's the book that has had the most profound impact on your life? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Why? Well, because there are a lot of areas of my life where, you know, I mean, books have had a profound influence, you know, whether you're talking about something as silly, but as at the same time, as basic as rich dad, poor dad all the way through to, you know, books on inner peace and meditation and spirituality, or you're talking about books on business, uh, you know, Warren Buffett's books have been very, very solid in terms of finding or creating your investment uh, outlook. Or you're talking about even science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, something as like the, the Lord of the Rings, which I went, you know, I was 
how old was I? It was like 13 or 12, 14 when I read that. And that, that instilled in me a love of literature in general. So it's very difficult to pinpoint one specific book. It has to be you know, divided up into all of the areas of your life that combine to make the person that you are, right? Yeah, well, that, that was a good answer. You made some references to books that changed your life in a way and that sure. that people could find useful. What's in your eyes the single most important skill to have as a real estate investor? That's a good question because it, I wouldn't say there's one. There are really many because it has to be, you know, there's one aspect, social engineer, right? You need to know what, what people want, what, where the trends are, you know, how, how people want to live, how people want to work. So there's one part social engineer. There's one part financier, right? You need to make sure that the numbers work, right? I have a friend who is one of our partners and he says that he'll never invest in, in a building. He never visits or even sees pictures of a building that he's investing in. He just wants first, it's the numbers. First, it's you know the, the Argus. And first, it's that. And then if that makes sense from a numbers perspective, then he'll fall in love with the building because he doesn't want to. He wants to avoid falling in love with the building, right? Any Any sort of of emotional attachment to it. At the same time, there are elements of, you know, faith. (laughs) You have to have faith because, you know, you're making these investments. And of course, you know, those investments are for the long term and you do own, right? There's a a real asset there. It's not as if you're going to be able to turn around and sell it through Charles Schwab tomorrow, right? Like you might Apple stock or, or something like that. So there's an element of that. Uh, There's an element of sleuth, right? There's an element of detective where you have to go in and and when you do your tenant interviews and you're doing your due diligence and you're making sure that both the land itself and, and the tenants are actually telling you the truth and that they plan to actually execute or, or go, f- go forward with the commitments that they've made to you. At the same time, hell, I mean, right now, for example, there's an element of meteorologist, right? Especially when you invest in, in the Gulf Coast and the Gulf of Mexico or, or in places like Southern Florida or even in Phoenix, we are very well aware that, you know, global warming is really happening and it's happening at an accelerated rate. And so you have to be very careful. I mean, we had what, 29 named storms this year. So it's just a matter of time that you're going to have devastating uh, meteorological impact on your investments. So do you really want to be in a place like Galveston or do you really want to be in a place like Miami or how much longer can Phoenix survive with days that are above 120 degrees. I mean, is that is that really viable in the long term? Because it's going to, I mean, you've already seen it happen and it's just going to get worse, right? You know that, right? And so are, do you really want to, you know, you need to factor in all of those issues because eventually when the market gets there, then the collapse is, is imminent, whether you're talking about actual destruction through extreme weather, or you're talking about the fact that the area just stops being attractive because of extreme temperatures and all of that. So I would say that as a real estate investor, you really have to, you know, keep your eyes open and look at that horizon because you're in it for the long haul, right? So we're bullish, for example, I mean, if you take a place like Houston, we are bullish on the Northwest area of Houston, places like Katy, Cinco Ranch and all of that. We're bullish on Spring, Texas. We're bullish on on areas that are not you know, directly impacted when the next five hurricane comes through, which is going to happen, right? So you really do need to think about all of those things. Correct. Correct. So in a way, 
perhaps uh, a way to answer the question, which that, that was a fantastic answer, but you have to be able to organize information and analyze that information and ask the right questions and find the answers and be able to analyze that information. You, you said it much more eloquently than I did, but I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. No, it, it, what is it? The other day that we were looking at a property in Chicago. Chicago is a spectacular city. Spectacular. I mean, just fantastic. But at the same time, you've got to consider the fact that the state of Illinois is practically bankrupt with its financial commitments over the medium term. It's, it's funny because, you, you know, you pick up all of these different things. And that's when you realize that, you know, that you really do have to you really do have to be a jack of all trades in that sense or organize information like you said. Yeah. So perhaps as a or to that social engineer quality, what's a real estate trend that you're paying attention to? I think certainly. Demographic growth, but at the same time, the ability to actually develop land, right? And so, for example, for, for us, that's really, uh, you know, nimbyism for us is is deadly, right? You guys understand that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Not the, in the, my whole, backyard. the whole not in ba my backyard thing, the whole, you know, like a friend of mine says, you know, it's it, nimbyism in San Francisco has, has turned into, has gone from nimby to banana, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere, right? <laughs> and so... We certainly look at that in terms of, you know, where people want to live, how they want to live. And we believe that, for example, unlike some other people, we actually think that the office does have a future and particularly office that's closest to where people are live. So that if you have a work from home situation, three days out of, you know, maybe two days out of the week or whatever, you have easy access. So that's why we like, for example, suburban office so much. So these are the trends that with the you know, okay. and obviously having having a very deep pool of talent in whatever city you are, and I think that that's where Houston comes in, where Dallas comes in, where Denver comes in. That's another thing that we really like that we look for. Perfect, perfect. Well, Agustin, you've provided us with tremendous information and a behind the scenes look into how you make decisions and how your company operates. Do you have a parting piece of advice for our listeners? Yeah, you know what? I've seen a lot of people, they complicate their decision making process. And, you know, they've got all these things going on. And, you know, maybe I can make a killing over here because there's a right FOMO, there's significant FOMO going on in, in the investment world. If I may offer my words of advice after 28 years of doing this for, on a personal level, just look at the fundamentals and you know, there are some good opportunities out there. Be very clear about what money you have that you want to have fun with, right? Because, you know, if you've made a little bit of, a, you know, if you have a little bit of a nest egg that you're not dependent on, then sure, you know, I'm, there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do with your money as in with your investments. But also be very clear about what your objectives are in terms of income and make sure that you're not kidding yourself, especially in real estate. Make sure you're not buying that place that you're looking at because you have this idea of this, you know, if what you're looking for is that sort of fun stuff, Airbnb has some properties that I'm sure are a lot better and they're a lot less costly. And don't kid yourself with respect to what is a luxury and what is an investment. If you want that luxury, by all means, knock yourself out. But make sure that you understand that it is a luxury and that it will cost you as a luxury. It is not an investment. So that's the one word of advice that I would give people. And that's a great way to wrap up on focusing on the fundamentals because it's very easy to focus on the what you were mentioning on the previous two answers. We're going to have people looking at the, at the 
weather reports and looking at all kinds of information that you need to factor in in some way or another. But don't lose sight of what are the fundamentals and be sure to spend the biggest portion of your time on that part. There's some incredible weather maps by ProPublica that has done an that has done a phenomenal job of what's going on in terms of what's happening and what will be happening over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Anybody who's making an investment really needs to take a look at that. Okay. Well, thanks for that advice, Agustin. And thank you for all the advice that you've given us here today. It's been a pleasure to have you. I learned a tremendous amount about your business and about the way you make decisions, which will be extremely helpful for me and I'm sure for many of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Un abrazo. Gracias. Un abrazo. Adiós.